All right. We are actually uh, in our fourth lesson, and this fourth lesson has to do with the historical background of the church, and this is the third part of that historical background. So far, we've sought to provide some kind of a brief overview of this backdrop. We've discovered that there are basically two parts to that backdrop. The first of these is the Roman Empire, and the other is the nation of Israel. Regarding the Roman Empire, we said these things. We said that there were three major forces that held the empire together. They had a unified political system, economic system, and a unified intellectual system, which was basically Greek. We looked at the four main religions that were influential during the days when the early church was being formed. We said that the first of these was traditional pagan worship. The second was emperor worship. The third was Eastern mystery cults. And the fourth is philosophy. To us, philosophy is more of an academic exercise, but in these days, it was far more a religious exercise. We said that in that philosophy, there were three major schools of philosophy. The first of these was Platonism. We said that the followers of this philosophy said that everything is constantly changing. Nothing stays exactly as it is, but is always in the process of becoming something else. And rather than simply being, everything in the world is becoming. Even humanity in their following after certain ideas of the divinity would become divinity. So it's a becoming of all things. They also believed in the superiority of the soul and the spiritual life over the body and the physical life. And we said last week that that gave rise to one of the earliest controversies in the church, and that's the controversy over the person of Christ as being the God-man, that if the physical life and the physical body was so far inferior to the superior, the superiority of the spirit, then how could Christ actually have a, a body, a real body, and a real human spirit? Um, and we said that it gave rise to one of the earliest controversies. And, of course, we'll address these controversies later as they were uh, hammered out theologically by the early church fathers. We said, secondly, the second major philosophy in our discussion was that of the Epicureanism. This was basically a philosophy of pleasure, not a pleasure of hedonism so much, but the idea of being at peace, uh, the idea of having a quiet life of self-control. Those are the Epicureans. It, they were very anti-religious. They did not believe in an, antro, an, an afterlife. And so they said, you are gonna, your, your life is now. You're going to live your best life now by being self-controlled, having a quiet, peaceable life. Then the third group was that of Stoicism. We finished up our lesson last week with this third philo philosophical group. These were the materialists. Everything was made of matter. There is nothing that is not made of matter. They believed that successful living came about by the disciplining and controlling of human emotion. And so... Hence the rise to this expression, a person who is a stoic, someone who does not show any emotion, not particularly high in life, not particularly low in spirit, but sort of even keeled. So that's the Roman background to the formation of the church. And we discussed that last week. There is a second prong to the background, and we basically very quickly introduced it last week, and that's the Jewish background the Jewish background. In order to understand the relationship between the Jewish people 
and the Roman Empire, we took a look backward just a couple of centuries before Christ. We spoke of the death of Alexander the Great. We said that in his young life, his early death, that he did not have the foresight to name a successor to his, a successor to his empire. And so consequently, after his death, it was divided up into four smaller empires. And of course, we could go into all of those four smaller empires, uh, actually prophesied by Daniel. If we go back to Daniel, you can read of, those, of the, the beast with the four. So you've got these four empires. We're only going to narrow our focus down to one empire, and that's the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire took over the area of where Jerusalem is, or Israel. Also, it um, included some other areas as well. In 161 BC, the Romans made an alliance with the Jewish people who were living in Judea in those days. So during that, the days of the Seleucid Empire, 161 BC, the Romans made an alliance with the Jews to fight against the Seleucids at that, at that time as Rome was continuing to expand its empire across basically what we know as the Mideast. That alliance was, was to bolster the armies as they fought against the armies of the Seleucid Empire. And because of this alliance, the Jews enjoyed a relatively friendly relationship with the Roman Empire. And that gave rise to certain privileges that they had. You say, well, you know, why were they treated with these privileges? Well, because of the history that they had with Rome of helping them in fighting the Seleucids. They were not conscripted into the military, and they did not have to take part in any of the pagan ritual worship that took place, and they did not even have to be a part of emperor worship in those days. And so that was, you say, well, why not? Well, because of that history they had with the Romans. That's where we finished last week. If you would, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, and if you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll read of a particular individual here, Matthew chapter 2. And we'll pick up our reading with verse 1. Matthew chapter 2 and beginning with verse 1. You have these words. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Of course, completely innocent on their part. Who else would they ask? They would ask the, the man sitting on the throne, who, where is this individual who's born king of the Jews? Well, you can imagine how those words fell on the ears of Herod. Now, wait a minute. I'm the king of the Jews. So you get to verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Those religious leaders, I'm sure, is particularly involved there. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So of all people who should have known had the passages of Scripture that would define where this king would be born, you would think it would be the king of, uh, who was sitting on that throne. He didn't have a clue. So now he's getting his leaders together, what is this all about? 
Who is this that's being born? Where is he supposed to be born? Verse 5. They told him, they're quoting scripture, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, shall, who will shepherd my people Israel. And so you have this individual mentioned in this passage in verse 1. Um, it is in the days of Herod the king. Well, now who is this Herod? Well, this Herod is Herod Antipater. Herod Antipater. How did he become king? He is not of the house and lineage of David. So why is he sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? Well, the answer to that goes back to um, 37 B.C. The Romans placed him on that throne in 37 B.C. Going back a few decades earlier to 63 B.C. was the end of a revolt against the Romans by the Jews. It was quickly squelched. Back in 63 B.C., that area where the Jews were living became a Roman province by the Roman general Pompey the Great. So in 60, in, earlier than 67, about 67 B.C. or so, there was a series of revolts. I think, um, I think of his name. I can't remember who it was. Um, no, one mass earlier than that was Maccabeus. Um, it's mentioned in Scripture, and I'll, I'll, I'll come up with it later. But there was a revolt against the, the Romans. It was squelched. So in, eventually in 63 B.C., the Romans now, remember their, their history with, with Jews and being kind and having all these privileges, a lot of that was stripped away. And so now they became a Roman province. Right, so now they're not their own country. They're, they're a, now they're a Roman province, once under the Seleucids, now a Roman province. Having done that, they restructured the government, as it were. So after this uprising in Judea, it was crushed. The Romans restructured the Judean governmental system. Finally, in 37 BC, after another series of skirmishes, the Romans placed Herod Antipater on the throne as the king of Israel, but still just part of a Roman province. He was a king over an, a nation, over a, a kingdom that really, for all intents and purposes, didn't really exist. It was a Roman province, and he was the king over these individuals, placed there by the Roman government. This is not the same Herod that killed John the Baptist. It's not, that, it's not the same Herod before whom Jesus stood at his trial, at his crucifixion. That Herod was Herod Antipas. So that's a, that's a completely different Herod. So this is Herod Antipater. Regarding Herod Antipater, eventually Augustus placed Judea under direct Roman rule and put a Roman governor in charge of the area. And that individual answered directly to the emperor. So now as they restructured all this governmental form in Judea, you now have this governor who is over, and this governor is responsible to the Caesar at the time, at, 
right? So he wants to make sure that everything is okay. There are no uprisings. There's no, no, no noise, no disturbances that would take place. And, of course, we know who that individual was. That was, during the days of Christ, that, was, that governor was Pontius Pilate. Right. So you can imagine how he is when all of a sudden there's this big uprising, there's this uproar. He just wants to wash his hands of it and not have this go back to Caesar because then he would lose his job and life as well. The Jews still possessed some measure of independence. A lot of it had been stripped away by now, and of course later on it will be completely stripped away. But they still had a little bit of a measure of independence. So they had their own court system, and they had what we call the Sanhedrin, right? or Sanhedrin, however I've heard it pronounced both ways. They had the Sanhedrin. That was the highest court among the Jews. They could try cases they could sentence criminals, but they could not sentence a criminal to capital punishment. They could not sentence that person to death. And so if you remember your history, when Jesus was arrested, he was originally taken to Pilate, you know, and he says, well, but I don't have anything to do with this man. Take him to Herod. He's the one that's in charge of the Antipas, the Caiaphas, the high priest over the Sanhedrin. So he was tried there, and he said, well, no, he needs to go back to, to Rome because we can't kill him. We don't, have that, we don't have that authority. So that has to go back to Pilate again. So that's why we have all these trials going on, because the Sanhedrin was a, was a court, and also the Romans had their court as well over the, over the Jews. Um, during the time of Christ, the religious life of the Jews was dominated by four main groups. So if you're ready to write down four main groups again, these are the religious leaders of the Jews, or at least the dominant religious forces of Jerusalem during the day, and there were four of them. The first of these is the Sadducees, the Sadducees. They were a small group, but they were very powerful, very powerful group. They were made up of wealthy individuals who were mostly priests. So again, a small group, but they, held, they, had, they had the money, right? They, were, they would be more of a political group than the others. These were the Sadducees. They held to the authority of the Pentateuch alone, not any of the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. But oddly enough, even though they believed in the Pentateuch, you had these individuals, they did not believe in the existence of angels. They did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. And they did not believe in life after death. So they're very here, now, materialists, um, very pragmatic in, in, in political affairs. Whatever's good for themselves is what would be good for their nation, at least to them. A lot of you are familiar with the first century uh, historian Josephus. These are his words about Sadducees. He says this, quote, The Sadducees deny the existence of destiny in any form and teach that God can neither decree sin nor have any involvement with it. People are absolutely free, they say, to choose between good and evil. Each individual must decide solely for himself. The Sadducees, were ut the Sadducees utterly denied the immortality of the soul. They denied punishments in hell, and they denied heavenly rewards of any kind, unquote. So that's Josephus and his description of the Sadducees. So that's one religious group 
of four that sort of dominated that life, the religious life of the Jews in that day. The second group is the Pharisees. The Pharisees. This group is the largest group of the four, and they grew after the Jews returned after their captivity in Babylon. And we, desiring to shed the best light we can on the origination of the Pharisees, that they were desirous of holding the law, making sure people obeyed the law. Those who came back from Babylon, this is the law, this is how we're to obey it. And they did what theologians, Bible historians refer to as, as fencing the laws. And so they would say, here's what the law says here. You can't, the law says don't do this. And so they would back it up a fence or two and say, don't do this, so you don't even get close to that. Right. And it built and built until they had their own traditions, and they ended up having traditions lifted up as high as Scripture, and in, and in their heads even higher than the Scripture, so that they, they basically nullified God's commandments with their own traditions, the Pharisees. Their name means separated ones or pure ones. And they were known for their strict adherence to God's law, as I said momentarily. They were also strongly opposed to the Sadducees. And they were also Jesus' main enemies because they lifted up their traditions and, of course, Christ magnifying God through the obedience of God's commands and not their traditions. They were, the strong, they were strongly opposed to the Sadducees unless they could side with the Sadducees against Christ. And so from the very beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, they got together in secret seeking how they might destroy Christ and take his life and kill him. That's two groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. The third group would be the Zealots, the Zealots. And for this, I would ask you to take your Bibles, please. And would you turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Luke's Gospel and chapter 6. And we are going to pick up our reading with verse 12. This is a listing of those 12 apostles that Christ called during his earthly ministry. Picking up our reading of verse 12 in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, we find these words. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and this individual, Simon, who was called the Zealot. And then, of course, verse 16, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So whoever these zealots are, we'll describe them in a moment, one of Christ's followers was formerly one of these zealots, one of these in this group, right, of zealots. The zealots were mainly known for their militaristic desire to free Israel from Roman domination. It was, they were not necessarily a political group. They were more, if I might use this term, they were more of terrorists than anything. 
they, the historians believe that it may have been founded by Ju Judas of the Galilean. That's the name. I, I knew I'd come to it. You remember I described a revolt against Rome that took place back in, in the 60s BC was led by Judas, this Galilean. And he's mentioned in scripture as well. So they believe that Judas was one of these, uh, one of these, Judas the Galilean, a, leading a revolt, eventually killed. But he had followers that were called the Zealots, and they were always trying to figure out some way to destroy Rome in, in guerrilla warfare. Um, we might look upon this group, as I said, as a terrorist organization, and they resorted to all manner of secret warfare, including the assassination of their enemies. And so that's, these were the zealots. Right? Then you had, thirdly, you had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, you had the zealots, and then you had this third group called the Essenes, the, uh, the fourth group, the Essenes. Um, this group pretty much separated itself from all the other Jews. They huddled together in their own private secluded communities. Right? The best known of these communities is the Qumran community, which was located on the northwest banks of the Dead Sea. Probably a very, you're probably all familiar with that name, you know, the, the Qumran community. Well, these were the Essenes. They separated themselves. They believed themselves to be the only true group of Jews. All the others were false and, and apostates. This group at Qumran had amassed a remarkable collection of Old Testament scrolls. These were discovered over a 10-year period, going back to 1946 all the way to 1956. Over that 10-year period, they discovered, I say they, historians, archaeologists, discovered these scrolls at the Qumran community there on the northwest bank of the Dead Sea. And so hence we know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right? Um, there are more than 50, almost 15,000 of these scrolls and scroll fragments. So you can just imagine the treasure that that is. The oldest known existing copies of those Old Testament scrolls. And they're still preserved. If you go to Jerusalem, you go to the Israel Museum, and they're, they're there at the Shrine of the Book area of that Jerusalem Museum, uh, Israel Museum there in Jerusalem. And it's just a, a treasure of these, of these items. Well, do we have something that has a, has a description of any kind of copy of those scrolls? Well, yes, we do. Some of the oldest manuscripts we have were those individuals there at the Qumran community. The Essenes, as I said earlier, believed themselves to be the only true believers, and they believed that the Messiah would return in their generation. So they kind of huddled themselves together. They kind of cloister in these little communities, waiting for the return of Jesus. And do we still see that going on today? Uh, maybe not just the Jews, but any individuals cloistering up together somewhere saying, we're waiting on the Messiah to return which is contrary, absolutely contrary to what the Word of God tells his people to be, right? We're not told to cloister ourselves aside and huddle over somewhere else. We're told to do what? We're told to be salt and light in the earth and we're to disperse, not to be in the world, I mean, not to be of the world, but to be in the world, right? And we are salt to hold back the tide of corruption and light in a world of darkness to show them the way of Christ.
Uh, this is what Josephus says about the Essenes. He says this, quote, The Essenes have the strictest way of life. Jews by birth, they have a strong sense of brotherhood, a strong sense of brotherhood with each other. They shun the seeking of pleasure as a vice and praise self-control and the mastery of one's possessions as virtue. They reject marriage and choose the children of others while they're still young and teachable, training them to live as Essenes. They do not actually wish, and this is again from Josephus, just his perspective of the history. They do not actually wish to do away with marriage as the method of increasing the human race, but they fear the sexual immorality of women, being convinced that no woman ever remains faithful to one man. Again, his, that's his viewpoint of the history of the Essenes. They despise money, and they are communists as far as property is concerned. In other words, they, they held everything together in one purse, right? No Essene has more than any other. When men join their sect, they give up all their property to the common ownership of the community so that you will see you will not see among the Essenes either degrading poverty or excessive wealth. Each man's possessions become part of the common fund, and like a group of brothers, their entire property belongs equally to all. And of course, this is one individual's perspectives, Joseph, Josephus's perspective of the Essenes during the first century when he wrote. When he wrote. Okay, so... These were the most outstanding groups of what we might consider religious leaders in Israel in those days. Right? You had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And contrary to what you might think, most of the Jews did not live within the confines of what we would consider Israel, what a lot of people refer to in the day as, as Palestine, right? Most Jews did not live there. Most Jews lived elsewhere. Most of them were dispersed throughout the empire. And if you would, please, I'd ask you to take your Bibles, and we'll read of that in 1 Peter. Would you turn to 1 Peter, please, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1, and we will simply read the first verse. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and here's where they are. Here are the locations of these places where Peter is writing. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's a reference to what we know as the diaspora. The diaspora is simply the disbursement of the Jews. These, these Jews and these other areas, we call that the diaspora. The disbursement of the Jewish people from their homeland, which had taken place over the previous several centuries. We can go back 600, 700 B.C. The, the tribes of, of Israel first, were those, those ten lost tribes we refer to, they are dispersed. 
And then you have the, the nation of Judah being held captive in Babylon, some of them coming back, some of them staying in Babylon, some of them coming back. And then because of various skirmishes they had with the Greeks and the Romans, they're just dispersed everywhere. They call that the diaspora. So it's a, again, it's a reference to what we know as that. Um, some of the other areas, other than were mentioned there in First Peter, they were also in Alexandria. They had a large gathering of Jews in Alexandria. In Antioch, we refer, we refer to, uh, we read of in Scripture repeatedly, Ephesus, also Rome. There were Jews living there in Rome as well. So these are, most of the Jews did not live in that little area we refer to as Palestine. The Jews in those areas were not well liked by the Gentiles, mainly because they wouldn't eat the same foods as they ate. They were considered, they were just considered un, uh, just uncivil. They were considered non-sociable. They didn't, you know, get together with them. Um, they tended to huddle together in small groups in the cities. They would get together. They'd go to a city. You'd have a Jewish area where they would worship God in their, according to what they knew to worship God as. And so they were not liked. They, weren't, they were antisocial as far as the Romans were concerned, the Gentiles were concerned. However, there were some Jews who sought to wed Judaism with Greek culture. And we know them as the Hellenistic Jews. I think we, referred, we referenced them earlier on in our introduction, the Hellenistic Jews. These were the Jews that were, had a lot of Greek culture to them. They spoke the Greek language. They would read the Greek text of the Old Testament. We refer to that as the Septuagint translation. And so that's the text that they would read, rather than the Hebrew Bible or, the, or even the Aramaic of the day when Jesus was, was walking. We'll refer to them, we'll talk about them later on in a subsequent lesson, but just hold that in your mind about the difference between these Hellenistic Jews and then the Jews who actually lived in Palestine or other places but still held to more of a Hebrew culture or Jewish culture rather than the Greek culture. These were Jews. They had assimilated some of the Greek culture. They spoke the Greek language, and again, they used the Greek Septuagint. There's one other group before we finish tonight we want to discuss, and that is a group known as God-fearers. God-fearers. These were Greeks who had grown to appreciate some aspects of Judaism, and they associated with local synagogues, yet still uncircumcised. But they, they appreciated the fact that there was one God, right? And they appreciated the law and order of these people, the lifestyles. And so these were Greeks, these were Gentiles, or Romans, they were Gentiles, but they associated with the Jews in their synagogues. One other passage tonight before we finish. Would you turn to Acts chapter 10, please? I see some of you kind of looking in your eyes thinking, well, where am I going to see this in the Scripture? Well, here it is. And there are other places, but Acts chapter 10. And we'll read of one individual who was what we would refer to as a God-fearer. Acts chapter 10, and beginning with verse 1, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And we'll stop there. 
and we know what's going on. We know this Cornelius, Peter will be sent to his house, and there will be this uh, exchange between the two of them. And we know that at this time, at least early in chapter 10, Cornelius is not truly a convert. He is not a believer in Christ, um, but he is one of these God-fearers. Right? If you could skip down to verse 22 of chapter 10, you'll see these words. And they said, these individuals trying to vouch for him, they're, they're, they're saying, look, this, this guy is worthy of your attention. Verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house. And we can read the rest of that. So we know that that's, these people are saying, you know, Peter, this is, this is what's going on. And we can go to other places. You can go to Acts 13, verse 43. Go to Acts chapter 17, verses 4 and 17. Again, referring to people who we would call God-fearers. Not technically Christian, not Jewish, but associating themselves with the Jewish faith. So we've seen evidence in the scriptures of these various groups that began forming centuries before Christ's first advent. You can read the scriptures about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, about the Greek philosophers. We see all of these forming and even referenced in our Bibles. By the time of Christ's first advent, that once favorable relationship between Rome and the Jews began to deteriorate. You saw that. Until finally, we're going to get to the Jewish wars, A.D. 66 to A.D. 73, and of course, the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And so basically that's the historical backdrop to the forming of the church in the New Testament. Okay? Next week we'll start talking about this, the, the movement of these disciples and how they spread the name of Christ uh, throughout that known world in that day. Right? So let's bow in prayer, please, as we're close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. And we are grateful that we have given us this ability to study your word in association with the history of your church. Please bless all of our efforts in knowing these things to glorify you. Bless in our time of prayer together to follow we ask in Christ's name. Amen.